Hello fellow time travelers, Tony here. Two things before we start this episode. One is that for some reason there was a lot of background noise in this particular episode, and it was on all three channels, so in fact there's some background noise right now where I'm recording. So if you hear things that you don't normally hear or have some trouble hearing it. My apologies. We did the best we could on our ends. Dalton did the best he could with editing and so on. The other thing is that at one point, the origins of Rexoan are talked about, and I give my opinion that those origins must have come from one of the new adventures. And this is, in fact, true. It comes specifically from Christmas on a Rational Planet by Lawrence Miles. So there you are. Enjoy. Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the nightmarish task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. I am amazed we have not been able to use the word nightmare before. (laughs) My name is Tony Witt and today we have a not nightmarish at all three person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back our special guest, Jennifer Picker. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. Good to have you back. 
Great to be back. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you keep them in a dimensionally unstable crystalline storage device guarded by badly designed monsters. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Somnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Tom Baker's penultimate season with our discussion of Terrence Dick's novelization of The Nightmare of Eden. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Nightmare of Eden, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Dave Martin that aired from 11-24-79 to 12-15-79, published by Target Books in August 1980. As of this recording in April of 2022, this title is currently out of print, but will be available as an unabridged audiobook in October of 2022, 111 pages. This story was the very model of a troubled production, and not because it's just a very special episode addressing drugs, <laughs> which writer Bob Baker, working alone this time, decided to pair with his interest in the newly emerging field of holography. The anti-drug message was not the problem, despite some of the actors, such as Lala Ward, quite rightly insisting that the scripts be revised to take away any depictions that made drug use look cool or glamorous, because believe me, it does not look cool or glamorous in the story. No, the problem this time was threefold. It was the budget... It was the director, and it was Tom Baker. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah, exactly. Due to the rampant inflation happening back then, (laughs) yeah, much as it is now, the budget for this season had already been severely cut, and since a lot of money had been spent already on the Dalek story that opened the season and the story in Paris, there was a lot less to spend on this story for sets, visual effects, and the mandrels, the last of which comes in for a lot of well-deserved criticism in the story. Though, Jennifer, you say that you think they're cute and cuddly, right? Yeah, they're adorable. (laughs) They look like they need a hug. They do need a hug, and they'll give you one. But will you get out of that hug? That's the important thing. (laughs) They do look like plushies. However, plushies with a vengeance. The effects of the two ships are simply awful. A video effect has a character being shot in the face even though she clutches her stomach. And the sets look cheap compared to previous stories, despite most of the story being set on a supposed luxury cruise ship. Then there's the director, Alan Bromley, whose previous work on the show was Sarah Jane Smith's first story, The Time Warrior. Bromley was already frustrated by the technical needs of the shoot, which he wasn't used to, and the fact that the location shooting had been replaced by a single day of studio work. I don't know what location shooting they would have done. Probably they would have realized Eden as an actual planet, you know, rock quarry, whatever. But what we ended up getting was a lot better, but that's one of the few good things about this one. Unfortunately, Bromley was also very old school and authoritarian in his methods, and many of the cast had trouble working with him, especially Tom Baker. On the final day of production, tensions between them came to a head, with Bromley outright quitting 
before the dinner break, and producer Graham Williams having to step in and direct the rest of it. The production assistant for the show had t-shirts made up saying, I'm relieved the nightmare is over. <laughs> That's how bad things were behind the camera on this one. Wow. And they weren't much better in front of the camera, as the finished product shows. The actor playing Trist goes entirely over the top, and it's clear that in some scenes, Tom Baker is having trouble keeping a straight face because of the outrageous German accent that this guy is using. And at one point when one of the mandrels attacks, you can see Tom Baker almost break into laughter. It's, it's ridiculous. And then there is the infamous scene in episode four that luckily does not appear in the final product. I have not shown this to Dalton yet. I need to show it to Dalton. Because it is, well, it is just amazing. So let me share that on Zoom. Those of you at home will hear the audio, which is, <laughs> I wish we were that many removes ourselves, but there you go. Okay, so he's lured them into the place where the Eden projector is, and this is what happens. And those are mandrels, by the way. You'll be able to see them in a second. Those are mandrels. He's luring them into the projection. These two SM DEA agents. <laughs> oh, my fingers, my arms, my legs, my everything. Oh. I don't know if you heard the <laughs> line. I did, I did. <laughs> and then he comes out of the forest disheveled. Yeah. Yeah, the most tense part of the story, and it's played for laughs. Oh, wow. Yeah. <sighs> so, <laughs> that is not in the version that we had. Thank God. <laughs> well, you remember in the book, it just talks about the doctor luring them into the projection and then running back out and switching the projection off. So it's less... Yeah, okay. What we saw on screen, that was all Tom Baker's doing. He either convinced the director or he convinced Graham Williams. Either way, that was Tom Baker, for sure. So after that, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? <laughs> Jennifer, do you have the back cover in front of you? I do. A freak accident locks two ships together in space, and a distress call brings the Doctor Romana and the faithful K-9 onto the scene. The Doctor's efforts to separate the two ships involve him with treacherous drug smugglers, ferocious monsters, and savagely dangerous planet called Eden. Oh, that's the whole thing? That's it. Wow, okay. It's, it's that short. Yeah, it's short and sweet. You would think of all the stories that they wouldn't want to spoil, <laughs> this one... This one they decided to go all quiet on. Well, 
Interesting. May I throw in real quick a, an observation about Lala Ward that, that to add on to your little quick facts? Oh, yes. Okay, uh, researching this episode, um, I watched an interview by Bob Baker, and he said that he didn't know why they had changed the name of the drug, That because he originally wanted it Zip, then it became the Brax. So later I'm watching an interview with Lala Ward, and it was claimed that she wanted to change it because she was afraid that the word zip would be too alluring for children. Yeah, she wasn't the only one. There were other people in the cast who were worried about the name of the drug, and also there's a chemical name that canine gives earlier in the story. As a matter of fact, it's still there, but it's no longer called zip. It's instead called Vraxoan, which sounds a lot like heroin, kinda, but... Yeah. I don't remember if it was the episode of the book, but it does, if you say it phonetically, it is still zip. It's XYP. Yeah, exactly. But it can still be pronounced zip. So I think that was still a nod to Bob's original plan. Exactly. Dalton, first impressions. What were your first impressions of this? Well, looking at the cover, I don't know, Jennifer says that the, the, the mandrel looks kind of cuddly. It reminds me of something from The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> it kind of is giving me like oogie boogie feels oh god yeah and i get i get what you're saying jennifer about them being cuddly those big like glowing green eyes it's like yeah this is this is definitely something that teenage girls would buy in hot topic and ha- have on their bed <laughs> that's an insult to teenage girls i hope yeah. you know <laughs> um <laughs> But so the word nightmare, of, of course, is, is kind of loaded. It made me think of Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger. <laughs> but once once I started reading and got into the bits about the drugs and the two ships that are stuck together, I don't know. I, I've had issues with this before where it feels like the title of the book is like a small part of what the actual story deals with. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the end, with, with the mandrels being the actual source of the Vraxoan, that, that maybe Nightmare of Eden, yeah, is, is appropriate. But, but initially, I was like, what, what does this have to do with this planet? What, what the hell? Exactly. And Jennifer, when was the first time you read this book? Probably back in the 80s, whenever it was first released. I read them voraciously. I would clean out the bookstores with them as soon as they were available. There was a highly competitive competition between another fan friend and myself. If it was around in 86 or 87, that was probably when the peak of my reading. So probably then. And then last weekend, I read it. And then I've thumbed through it throughout the this week in preparation for tonight. Okay. And do you remember if you saw the story first or if you read the book first? Oh, definitely saw the story first. Ah, and what did you think of it? As a child, I was fascinated. I thought it was ador- uh, adorable wouldn't be the right word. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed it. As an adult and as a biologist, uh, with zoology as my background, um, botany as my, my master's degree, I really enjoyed pulling a lot of the science out of it, especially with Douglas Adams being the script editor. It was very sciencey, and um, I enjoyed pulling that aspect out of it this time. Hmm. Okay. It does have a few, well, <laughs> it does have a few good qualities to it, so I guess we should start there. <laughs> what did we like about this book, or the story, first of all? Okay, calling back to what's also very interesting is I'm working in a drug company right now that's established for people in recovery or crime scenes and things along those lines, so that also stood out to me. One of the things... I wanted to address that I particularly liked about it was immediately reading it. I got vibes of 
Douglas Adams. And then I had to stop and look it up. And that's how I found out he was the script editor. And even then watching it, reading it and seeing, I think I felt a very heavy Douglas hand in it. And then watching it, like the space cops uniforms, I really enjoyed having that reminiscent feel of Douglas Adams and his hand in in the writings of Doctor Who. Yeah, because it's not Bob Baker. I mean, Bob Baker and Dave Martin do have humorous elements in their scripts, but not to the degree that it's been inserted into this script. Now on the page, not so much. There isn't a lot of humorous content in the actual script, so it would all have to have come from Douglas Adams, Tom Baker, or the two of them in combination, and that's a deadly combination if you ever want to keep your script serious. Right, especially even like the first few lines. And I kept making parallels to Hitchhikers, the 80s made-for-TV series. Even reading the first uh, description of Azure from the spaceship, that was just screaming Douglas Adams. Just the description was just completely his style, and, and that was very nostalgic. Right. And who would have imagined that a planet named Azure would have blue skies and blue sand? <laughs> <laughs> It's almost going back to the Hartnell era and having that desert planet being called, what was it called again? Eridus. Yeah, I was going to say it was something like Arid, yeah. Eridus and Marinus is the planet of waters and all that, yeah. Speaking of names, that first chapter title, Warp Smash, I'm just surprised that no one has ever used that as the name of a punk band. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like it really should be. Oh, my goodness. Well, speaking of the the title of that chapter, I do like the idea of two entities basically being interconnected coming out of hyperspace or, or you know, ha- having their molecular structures basically being intertwined. I thought that that was an interesting idea to explore especially given the way that we have those uh, the zones that are basically just like mist where everything's kind of still broken down. Yeah, the interface zones. Yes, yes. I thought that was that was an interesting way to kind of get into the story and allow us to explore two spaces at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's much better realized on the page than it is on screen. Well, everything is better realized on the page about the story than it is on screen. But yeah, Terrence Sticks actually makes those sound much, much creepier than they appear on screen. They don't seem quite as dangerous there, hmm. but they, they very definitely are. If you've got two ships that are interlocked molecularly, then yeah, you don't want to be wandering around in that. Mm-mm. Right, and then the instability described as a tissue rejection, mm-hmm. and that the two were not stable and were rejecting each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. As far as other things I like, I have to admit, I'm surprised that Doctor Who hasn't really had an anti-drug message before this, because it seems like the 70s is where that would happen. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like it should have happened under Philip Hinchcliffe, if anybody. But somehow it never really shows up, whereas suddenly we have this say-no-to-drugs type episode. <laughs> that part of it is taken extremely seriously that if you were just to read the story just for the anti-drug message it definitely makes Vraxoan out to be the absolute worst thing ever and even the doctor is just aghast that anybody would be transporting it let alone using it so that actually works fairly well mm-hmm. you know at some points it almost seemed that Vraxoan was given to people without them 
knowing about it. So on one level, it made me think about, you know, all the conspiracy theories about heroin being created in labs and crack cocaine being... (laughs) Created by the CIA. Created by the CIA and being dispersed by the police force. Yeah, it just made me think about some kind of nefarious, larger machination of control... I don't know that it would have made anything any better if it would have ended up delving more into that. It got me thinking. <laughs> yeah, and at one point it's even weaponized. Mm-hmm. Because I think what you're referring to was someone being given it against their will was when Rig accidentally gets hold of the drug that was intended for Romana. Mm-hmm. It was either Trist or the other guy whose name I'm going to forget because he's such a forgettable Demon. character. Dimon, yes. That's it, Dimon. That one of them drugs her drink and Captain Rig just happens along and grabs it and is immediately hooked on it. That's the key takeaway from all this, that the drug itself doesn't seem like it's all that bad, except that it just makes people really loopy and really irresponsible. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as you come off it, you immediately want another dose, which is why I made that comparison to heroin earlier. It's got that same sort of immediate effect to it. Probably a better example would be the one that you hear about these days, fentanyl, which is not only hideously addictive, but also has a terrifying effect that immediately takes hold of you. So yeah, what else did we like about the story or about the book? While we're still speaking of the drug, did anyone research the history on the drug? Because I kept saying that it was so horrible that it had been eliminated. And that question was never addressed in either the episode of the book. So I looked up the drug and in like the TARDISpedia or something Mm -hmm. has a background on the drug. Canine originally identified it as being a fungal extract. And I was like, but then we get it out of roast mandrel. (laughs) I was like, so where do, where, where's this backstory on it? What? (laughs) So anyway, I looked it up and it was originally found on the Cygnus rim in about 1999 and it was taken through snorting it was originally made from a fungus and ultimately to completely eradicate the drug and the trafficking they completely whatever officials uh, incinerated the planet that sounds like it may have come from one of the new adventures i'm betting anything okay that sounds very much like it comes from a new adventures novel especially if they said it was discovered in 1999 i could just see them (laughs) doing something along those lines and it would not be surprising if the time lords had something to do with it because Romana happens to know what Vraxoan is. Mm. So that tells you something. I mean, she's been traveling with the Doctor now for quite some time, but she seems to already have that knowledge ahead of time. There's a lot around that. And occasionally Terrence Dick seems to be having some fun with the actual script because Bob Baker has keyed up a few good lines, such as when he's asked what his date of birth is. He says, I can never remember sometime quite soon, I think. (laughs) Yes. Which is awfully nice. But yeah, in fact, I am looking through my notes right now to just see some of the other lines that are good here. In fact, there are a few lines, a very few lines, that are improved on screen. There's an exchange between Trist and the Doctor about the machine in Chapter 6, and Trist says, naturally, you have a right to your opinion, Doctor. I have a right to go on living, too, and this machine makes me very nervous. On screen, the Doctor says, Good, I value my life, and this machine makes me fear for it. 
So every once in a while you get those upgrades, but it's still pretty decent on the page. I would love to have heard K-9 muttering under his breath, because I can't imagine him muttering or having breath. <laughs> so bits like that. Right. Can you tell that I'm trying very hard to accentuate the positive before we go on to the negatives? <laughs> because, oh my goodness. Oh, there was a line, uh, I don't, it was in, I think, chapter five. He had K-9 say something dogmatically. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you can tell that Dix has probably been sitting on that one for a while. <laughs> He's been wanting to use that. I did love the the bit where one of the passengers kind of giving it to the doctor and chasing him and he's trying to get away from her he he ends up pulling out the bag of jelly babies and just shoving one in her mouth telling exactly. her not to forget to brush her teeth right yes. <laughs> just go away I, I called her karen on my notes yeah mm-hmm. she's essentially that oh good lord yes <laughs> something i found kind of fun was this takes place in 2116 and what was really funny reading it is that they have magazines audio tapes and video cassettes Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Something that I found very interesting is Romana's dismissal of the machine as a magic lantern. And yet, it's little better than a form of miniscope, which the Doctor got really riled up about way back in Carnival of Monsters because the Time Lords had gotten them banned. You have to wonder how this is any different because it's still a form of keeping living creatures alive but imprisoned on crystalline recordings. But it's just kind of odd, really. Oh, yeah. The bug. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the bug. Because Romana in Chapter 5 turns on the projection of Eden and gets attacked by some bug that comes out of the screen that then stings her and she drops to the floor. And on screen, Della just says, oh, well, you shouldn't have turned the machine on. And she doesn't give her an explanation about the bug. And you're like, the hell was that? Why did that come out of there? Why is it neither of them are talking about it? What the hell? At least on the page, we get a name for the bug and Della tells us what it is but then she characterizes it as something that knocks you completely out just to take a drop of your blood and then she calls it a nuisance and it's like okay if you're operating heavy machinery and one of these things comes along and decides to knock you out to take a drop of your blood it's a little more than just a bloody nuisance yeah but at least we do get that. Maybe on Eden, whenever they were doing the research on Eden, it was just their experience as researchers. There isn't tractors, heavy equipment being used on Eden. Well, let's hope not. Let's hope there are also not a lot of those bugs, because if it knocks you out every time it wants a drop of blood, then everybody's going to be knocked out every five minutes. It's... I'm surprised we don't get any more of that. If however many mandrels get out and get onto the ship, how is, the, how is there only just this one bug that we see affecting Romana? There, there are however many of the mandrels there has to be other creatures from eden that have escaped as well but yet we we don't hear about any of that no and it's pretty clear that the whole point of that bug coming out of the projection is to establish that things can come out of the projection and yet not enough is made of it so that later when stott comes out of the projection it's not really much of a surprise and then when the mandrels show up it's not much of a surprise and it's like okay i really don't know what's going on with that there are some 
real plot holes. We're, we're drifting into the negative, which is fine. I'm perfectly fine with doing that. You would also think that Terrence Dix, having novelized Invasion of Time, would be a little more thoughtful about bandying the phrase DMAT gun around. Something is described as a DMAT gun, and we know from that story just how bad a DMAT gun is, and yet they just seem to have them in this one. Ugh lord i mean we, we were talking about some of the the humorous elements i'm sure as annoying as tom baker probably could have seen on screen and probably on set doing that zany doctor thing there are bits where it comes off well you know whenever we have basically the the dea agents come and the doctors you know just kind of giving it to them and he's trying to explain, and he says, someone's smuggling drugs, drugs, Fraxoin. And then Fisk says, names and dates of birth. And he says, how do I even know their names and dates of birth? I haven't <laughs> even found out who it is yet. Yes. So there's, there's some of that. There's a part with Romana and Trist where Trist says, uh, are you claiming that your scientific knowledge is superior to my own? And Romana says, well, actually, shall we say equal? <laughs> There's bits of it here and there where it's like, okay, this this is not overwhelmingly like stupid, but you're, you're getting kind of some good quips, a little bit of ribbing here and there. It doesn't feel like over the top like some of the stories we've had in the past, but I don't know how that read on screen. I don't know if it was just like super zany, like this, the clip you showed me. It <laughs> seems pretty zany in context because you know that these guys, well, that's just it. <laughs> They're meant to be serious DEA officers, but the two actors, you can tell, are not necessarily taking it all that seriously. You can tell that the very tone of the production is sending up the material at times, and that's one of those scenes where that happens. Which is unfortunate, because the very last episode, when Trist is finally bundled off and he's trying to talk to the Doctor and trying to justify this horrible thing that he's done, and the Doctor just stares into space and says, go away. Doctor, Doctor, I didn't want to be involved in all this. Tell him, tell him, and I only did it for the sake of funding my research. You understand all this? You are a scientist. No way. What? It's really quite effective, but it also gets lost because it happens not long after that scene that I just showed you. So, yeah. <laughs> One of the first things that stood out to me, and, and I, it's very interesting, but I don't think they played it as strong as they could in either the book or the show. Why is the zoologist on a tour bus, a luxury tour bus? Why he, is he not on a survey vessel? He, why was he not on the survey vessel with that Dimond? I thought that in hindsight, I thought that was really good foreshadowing as like, what is the zoologist doing on a luxury boat when there's a survey vessel involved? Yeah, that, that lets you know that something's already wrong. And then the rest of his behavior also is wrong. Speaking of which, <laughs> he describes himself as having the ambition to be the first interplanetary zoologist to qualify and quantify every species in the galaxy. Amazing. And that really is a Douglas Adamsism, isn't it? Because Douglas yeah, Adams will he Douglas Adams, you would think he would know better, but he has no sense of scale. It's hard enough to qualify and quantify every species on a single continent, let alone a galaxy. So yeah, that seems like that could have been just a little bit better. And galactic recession. Economics is apparently quite big. Space, it says, is big, really big. 
You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the street to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Listen. And so on. (laughs) (laughs) And did anyone else have... (laughs) Maybe it's just my dirty mind, but every time they referred to the CET machine, my eye kept replacing the E with a B. (laughs) It's just... Sometimes the story really does feel like CBT. But... <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that is the nightmare of Eden. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you get stung by a bug that puts you out, and then you wake up, and suddenly. <laughs> yeah. That's where you are. By the CBT machine. You've been bushwhacked. And a, another kind of fun comparison was a survey vessel was named Hecate. Mm-hmm. That reminded me back to K9 and company. That oh, was God. the goddess that the pagans were worshiping when they stole Sarah Jane's nephew. Yes. And my roommate is becoming something of an expert on Wicca, and he's looked into Hecate, and Hecate doesn't fit no, either no. of these two things. And on screen, for that matter, Dimon doesn't even pronounce her name correctly. He pronounces it Hecate. Yes, that's a, you read my next note. <laughs> but the doctor pronounces it right. Yeah, of course he does. It's a doctor. He can't pronounce Taryn correctly, but he can pronounce Hecate correctly. <laughs> <laughs> that's Tom Baker for you. Oh, goodness. I also noticed that Romana gets weirdly stuck on the name Mandrels. How did you get those marks? A mandrel. The thing I saved you from. Mandrels? Stop, they're called mandrels. Well, start, you've got some explaining to you. 183 days here. Master, during your absence, I encountered alien creatures in this area. Mandrels, canine. They've noted, mistress. That she's trying to tell everybody that she can that they're called mandrels. And it just comes off really weird. It's almost as bad as Polly going on and on about Malaysia in the mm-hmm. 10th planet. <laughs> I really don't know what it is. And the doctor dismisses her repeating the name in, in a very mean way, but it's kind of a dumb line as well. It's not really worthy of her. <sighs> I don't like Ramon in the story, to be honest. Yeah, I did notice when they were in, I think it's Stott's hut in Eden, when she found out Mandrel, she like clutches the doctor's coat. They're called Mandrel's doctor. And <laughs> that was very dramatic, Ramona. Yeah, exactly. And later on, she gets scared of the mandrel's body, and she makes the mistake about the cable. It's just really out of character for her to be like that. It's almost incompetence, and she's generally not incompetent in that way. Mm. That, and if you watch the televised story, she has no dress sense all of a sudden. She's wearing the ugliest outfit. Like grandma's curtains. Oh, God, yeah. It is the most unflattering outfit. In fact, I, well, you'd probably remember better than I would, Jennifer, but I think when she's interviewed on the DVDs about it, she says that she really hated that outfit because she wouldn't have chosen it. That's for sure. There are, there are a few that she had some very strong opinions of. Yeah, yeah. Um, the creature from the pit, she hated that dress as well. Yeah, because that was much more Mary Tam dress. Yes, it was. Understandably, whereas the next story, she's going to have something quite appropriate to wear for the story, but not this time. Just to kind of throw a wild card out there, especially with my fascination, with Douglas Adams being the script editor and Lola Ward being on set, had Tom Baker and Lola Ward gotten married yet? No. I'm glad you brought that up because 
one of the sources that I was reading actually gives you something of a timeline of their romance. Apparently that romance started when they were in Paris filming City of Death. And by this point in the season, they were kind of regretting it and saying, well, that was unprofessional. We should probably cool it off a little bit, except it was still happening. They would get married the following season. Okay. Because especially with, with this being a zoologically based episode, and I, actually I kind of like the idea of preservation of species, saving their genetic codes, uh, I think would, would be a fantastic scientific approach. I don't like them snatching them and encaging them in, in little snippets of time and space. But anyway, with, with it being Douglas Adams and Lola Ward, and ultimately Douglas Adams introducing Lola Ward to her now ex-husband, Richard Dawkins, and Richard Dawkins does so much documentation of species and migration. I was just wondering if there was a link there or if I'm just making it up because I love this all. They met at Douglas Adams's, I believe it was his 50th birthday party. Save your cards and letters. I've since looked it up and it was his 40th birthday party. My apologies for that. So that would have been significantly afterward. Yeah, okay. Because I think Adams was uh, late 30s, early 40s at this point. I really, unfortunately, do not remember. Yeah, I had, I had intended to look up that timeline before we spoke, but I didn't get to. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's just synchronicity. Okay. One of the few good synchronous bits coming from this particular <laughs> script. <sighs> yeah, I'm sorry, y'all. My disgust with the story probably is coloring my view of the book because when it comes right down to it it really is a much better book yes than it is a televised story actually i wrote that a few times in my notes that the book does the story much more justice yeah dix is playing it much more seriously you don't get to see the bad special effects you don't get to see the mandrels as cuddly because that image of them on the cover is not necessarily cuddly. They actually look a little frightening on the cover. I was picturing them more kind of like werewolves. Mm. Oh, that would have been interesting. That may have been colored by the fact that I've been playing through Bloodborne. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. <laughs> but I, they, they just, they seemed very lupine. So... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was getting out of it. Probably a better way to think of them. Mm -hmm. Even with the, the image of it on the front cover, once I started reading, I to that totally left my brain, and I just thought of them as big bipedal wolves. You also have to wonder what Trist's endgame is, because he keeps trying to pass suspicion off onto Romana and the Doctor, but he must know that the truth is going to come out pretty easily even if he and Dimond get away, especially if they get away. It, uh, Trist just, ah, uh, he's not a particularly good zoologist. He's really not good at putting together a miniscope. And as a drug runner, he's just abysmal. So you have to wonder just how someone falls so bass awkward into all three of these things. <laughs> he was oh, just hoping dear. his charm was going to win out. Oh, God, his Germanic charm. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> oh, good God. Yeah, that doesn't come across on the page either, thank goodness. Though there is that wonderful misprint. At least I had it in my um, PDF. And Dalton, you probably had it in yours. At one point, he pats Della's N. And it's obviously meant to be arm, but it's two N's instead. And luckily it wasn't two S's, or else this would be a very <laughs> different book. 
Oh, dear. <laughs> You'd have even more reason to hate him. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, uh, we also just thinking of things that are stupid or horrible or we've seen a million times before. We have more carnivorous plants. Oh, yes. <laughs> Except the twist is they taste good when you bite into them. Yeah, that was cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's actually a very gross sequence on screen, believe it or not. But it's also played for laughs, obviously, because everything in the story is. Oh, Dalton, I meant to ask you. Were you surprised to find out, A, that Stott was alive, and B, that he was an undercover agent? I was not surprised that he was alive. I was (laughs) not expecting that he would be a drug agent i thought that he maybe was just an unfortunate crew member that found out too much and just tried to have him offed but i figured he was still alive especially given that when we're introduced to the ce team machine we're told that it basically takes whatever it's shooting and puts it into the crystal and it's like oh yeah he's in the crystal Mm. (laughs) he's totally in the crystal (laughs) i was a little confused when he kept running from the doctor Mm -hmm. because i mean that's of course it's meant to be there to make you think that that's the person that's smuggling that's the person that that's the nefarious drug dealer but yeah once i found out that that's who that was i was like why are you running from this person you don't even know who they are yeah (laughs) It's the oddest thing. I haven't been able to figure that out either because he claims that it's because he thought that the doctor might be involved in it. But if that's the case, why wouldn't he be, you know, well, that explains why he shot him to begin with, probably. Mm -hmm. But apart from that. That was kind of explained when he said that he had overheard the doctor and Ramona talking and determined that they were not involved. Right. There's a lot of that going around in this story, isn't there? Yes. This luxury ship doesn't have much in the way of privacy, especially if you've got another ship jammed halfway through it. With that having been said, one of my other notes is, for these captains being really kind of mad at each other for crashing into each other and arguing about the insurance, which was really quite creative, I like that overall, but (laughs) in the big scheme of things, neither ship or captain seemed at all worried about their passengers. No. No. (laughs) Even before the drugs. Yeah. I I have to admit, it is incredibly funny when the captain gets high and then sees his passengers being attacked and he says something along the lines of, You're only economy class, what's all the fuss about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we've all had days like that. <laughs> <laughs> so what else can we say about this? Because... As plots go, the plot of the story is really just kind of all about the drugs and the mandrels, which happen to be the same thing, and that's kind of it. Something that I kind of enjoyed was Dot and Della. That was one of the first times that there was like a true romantic or intimate innuendos about two characters. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that there was a little love twist to those two assistants to Triss. Mm Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you don't get much of that after it's introduced because by the end, well, by the end of the story, she's been shot either in the stomach or the face. You can't really tell. (laughs) But she's fine at the end because we see her at the end with Stott, but that's it. It's just really brief and the whole story ends with that really awful joke. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of potentially really good things that could have gone a lot deeper both in the book and the episode. 
Another one that I would have loved to have learned more about was when the doctor obviously apparently knew Professor Stein, who used to work with Trist. Mm-hmm. But we never yeah. got anything more. No. And I have to wonder how much of that is Bob Baker working on his own for the first time on Doctor Who, and whether if Dave Martin had been actually involved with it, if some of those things had been fleshed out. But I don't want to say that because I've seen other things that Bob Baker did on his own. And no, he's capable of better than this. I think it's just, it's this confluence of a fairly okay script given over to a director who really doesn't give a damn and is actively annoyed with everybody. And a star who just wants to play the whole thing up for laughs, even when it's serious. And it's just that confluence of horrible things <laughs> coming together to make the story happen. But you don't see any of that on the page, thank goodness. That being said, we still get the plot that we do on the page. I almost wish, you know, I'm I'm sitting here looking at something I had highlighted when the doctor is learning about the CET machine. And it says the CET is no more than an electronic zoo for cages, red laser crystals. Either way, the animals are trapped inside. And I wish that there would have been some kind of parallel between the animals literally in a cage and how addiction works. And is a cage in and of itself. And that might be more of a millennial 21st century reading of it. I can't imagine that in the 70s people were as empathetic towards addiction. But Beautiful I, modern spin on it though. I like it. But yeah, I feel like that that could have... I mean, that it could have gone completely wrong. We've seen that a lot of times too. Where there's, there's a larger philosophical statement trying to be made. Which is not effective. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I wish that there would have been something more to weave the story together than it just literally being about the drugs being made of these creatures that this person has found. Yeah, it doesn't have a lot more going for it, does it? And it really should. I mean, it's an anti-drug Doctor Who story. You're absolutely right. It should be pounding that message a lot more. But there's... Actually, if you think about it, there's probably too much going on in the story because you've got the ships colliding and being fused together. You've got the drug running. You've got the mysterious figure chasing the doctor around or vice versa. You have the danger of the interfaces. You have the mandrels. You have that bug that appears once and then never comes back. And you have Romana's dress. And all of it comes together in this terrible <coughs> of information and none of it really gets played out in the way that it should in any depth mm -mm. yeah it's, it's a bunch of superficial details that are just there just exist yeah yep there's the line that says don't you think all those addicts becoming extinct is rather more serious and he talks about how even the bad things deserve to live so even as bad as this is maybe you know someone somewhere gets something out of it <laughs> Yeah, that could have been expanded out somewhere, but no. No, of course not, because that would mean that somebody actually cared about this story. And I don't get the impression that many people did. This certainly isn't at the top of most people's favorite story lists. Yeah, this one's kind of feels kind of like a throwaway, like forgetful, yeah. not really much to it. Well, just wait. <sighs> <laughs> I I'm sorry. 
we, we've got at least one more of those before we get into the uh, John Nathan Turner era, but then we get some oh, of them boy. during the John Nathan Turner era as well. So what fun. Okay. Any last thoughts on this one before we go to Goodreads? Thinking about me thinking the mandrels were more like werewolves. The fact that the doctor has the dog whistle and leads them back into the CET machine with that further like solidifies that in my brain. It's like, yes. these are, these are dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that would have been awesome. And in fact, when he does lead them in there, the mandrels are making dog like sounds. So that would have been great, but no, there wasn't enough budget to make them that way. And who gets drugs from dogs anyway, unless they've sniffed them out themselves. They're drug dogs. <laughs> They're drug dogs. They were from the DA. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Well, there's it's your all twist. all set up. Yeah. They're, they're, it's an inside job. <laughs> yes. There's your surprise <laughs> twist. Oh, God. <laughs> Shall we go to Goodreads? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Let's please go to Goodreads. As we always do, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of this book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.42, which kind of surprises me, but I think that's the story that's surprising me ever being that high. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it 3 stars and says, I read this book before watching the TV version this time around as I vaguely remembered it being so awful that the book would benefit from not being too closely compared. Yeah, I wish I'd done that. And I wouldn't have the TV fault spoiling my reading. It worked, but in fact the TV show, though not without myriad faults, was a quite as bad as I'd thought. One problem that made it to the book was the depiction of Trist. The bad German accent marked him as villain straight away. It could not have been more obvious if he'd been wearing a swastika armband. <laughs> That's true. A problem less obvious to the casual viewer was the director Alan Bromley, whose baleful influence, there's your um, werewolf reference, was felt even though he quit halfway through production with producer Graham Williams taking over. The rest of the crew noted that Bromley didn't understand how to direct Doctor Who, nor was he interested in learning an attitude that led to his only other effort, the time warrior, including stock footage of boulders tumbling meant to represent a castle being blown up. So bad, even Barry Letts on the DVD commentary for that story was gently scathing. (laughs) Thankfully, Taron Styx ironed out most of the faults and tidied up a few plot holes. I enjoyed reading the story more than I did watching it. Jason Koivu also gives it three stars and says, When I found this at a used bookstore, I was pretty excited to read it. The Nightmare of Eden was a favorite Doctor Who episode of mine. Oops. <laughs> Spoke too soon earlier, didn't I? It's someone's favorite episode. Now I'd get the chance to read the novelized version of the TV show. I was curious to see how it differed, if at all, from the original. Only problem being that I haven't seen the episode since the 80s. Were highly addictive drugs the crux of the plot on the show? The kids' show? (laughs) All I remember is that sweet-ass monster and how it was captured in a projection of a jungle until it broke free and wreaked wonderful havoc aboard ship. Let's face it, I watch for the monsters. 
due to the yeoman-like, wham-bam-tee-mama quality of the writing in this book. I hope I read that correctly. I think it's thank you, mama. Yeah. Is it thank you, mama? Okay, wham-bam, thank you, mama. mama. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it's supposed to be ma'am. Wham-bam, thank you, ma'am. Well, great. As he said, due to the yeoman-like, whatever he said, quality of the writing in this book, the monster is pretty much the main draw here as well. And finally, Gareth gives it three stars and says... Drugs are bad, okay? <laughs> Thank you for the South Park reference. Seriously, this is a good message to convey, but it is reasonably heavy-handed throughout, and at times seems to take unnecessary precedence over more directly life-threatening or emergency situations, and certainly seems as heavy-handed, if not more so, than some of the more recent new Doctor Who stories, which seem to cop a fair bit of flack for it, which this one doesn't so much. That's actually a good point. It's an interesting idea, though, with ships colliding in out of hyperspace and various other experimental machinery interacting badly with the situation. The Doctor, Amon, and K-9 are in good form here, I think, all having some good moments and some humorous interactions as well. Many of the one-off characters, though, aren't so well portrayed, being somewhat one-dimensional with a few exceptions, making it hard to feel empathy for them It's an enjoyable story nonetheless, but doesn't reach the height of other stories. Boy, howdy. (laughs) So, out of five stars, Jennifer, what would you give this book? We'll go with a four. Three and a half to a four. If anything, for the personal takeaways from my interest in biology, zoology, botany, and now currently working in a drug rehabilitation laboratory... It just spoke to me on a different level than it did when I was a much younger viewer and reader. So I, I think that my personal take home from it raises it more, I think. Alrighty. And Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I would probably give this a th- uh, not a three. I'm thinking threes across the board, but no, I don't want to give it a three. <laughs> That's what all the other reviewers gave it. I would I would probably give it a 2.5, a little lower than everyone else. Terrence Dix is doing his best to make sense of everything that's given to him. I don't think that he necessarily did a bad job. I just think that there are so many disparate elements that are trying to be cobbled together to make some kind of sense out of the story that it just, I don't know, it, it seems just like too much for me. I think if it was a little more simplified... I would enjoy it more. And like I also said, I feel like if there was more to the theme other than just drugs are bad, I would care a little more about it. So it's 2.5 for me. Okay. And I would also give it a 2.5 for much the same reasons, especially since it's clear that at this point, Terrence Dix is really just phoning it in. This is definitely script to page. Luckily, because it means that we don't get some of the stuff we saw on screen on the page, which is actually a plus in this case. But he also doesn't take the responsibility to emphasize the anti-drug message more. And it seems like, given Terrence Dix's project with the novelizations to educate kids and all that, that would seem to be something that would be near and dear to his heart. But at this point... I don't think it's as much near and dear to his heart. I think the paycheck that he was getting for the novelizations was more near and dear to his heart because this was just done and whacked out on the typewriter. And there you go. So yeah, 2.5. Well, thank you both. 
And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll be looking at Terrence Dick's novelization of The Horns of Nymon. Yeah, God help us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.